I was, uh, I'm a businessman by vocation, and, and uh, one of the companies that I uh, do a lot of work with uh, held a conference in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And the conference was all about uh, what's next, what's next in our civilization. Uh, this particular company is an insurance company that insures churches all over the country, and they wanted to know what's next for the church. What, what, what's the church going to look like uh, in the next generation? And so they invited uh, three or four people to come and speak to that, uh, because this company is trying to, to posture themselves to do the best they can in business. And uh, the second speaker at that conference uh, was a guy that I'd never heard of, didn't know anything about, Mark Demaz. And he got up to speak, and uh, Robert, our, our son, was sitting with me. And I'm like writing on, on anything I could find to take notes. I wrote stuff on my hand, on a, on a napkin that I found. Uh, I finally gave up uh, because I just ran out of things to write on. But uh, he just filled my heart with so many things that I looked at through the eyes of a pastor, through the eyes of the church, uh, and the kingdom of God. And it's, it's, it was that moment that actually birthed this um, idea of, of uh, a series called Disruption. So I stole the title from a book that Mark wrote, and we just turned that into a series over the last couple of weeks. And uh, we had a chance to sit with Mark at that conference. We had lunch with him and started talking about the church and about the future. And um, we talked a lot about uh, what you guys now know as the 60% issue. And um, we just, I just knew uh, that we needed to hear from Mark. So I called and asked, hey, can you come out here and hang out with us? He, he lives in, uh, just outside of Little Rock, Arkansas, and uh, he said, man, I would love to come, Greg, and, and spend some time uh, in Leesburg. He didn't even know where Leesburg was, and, but he, he just wanted to hang out with us, and uh, so today's the day. And I am so thrilled that Mark can join us. Uh, he's a pastor. He's a businessman. Most of all, he is a city changer. Uh, he, has, um, he has just invaded uh, Little Rock, Arkansas with the gospel in a way that is so unique and so different. And um, people who were marginalized, disenfranchised, uh, Mark has figured out ways to reach and, and minister to and help and lead them to Christ. And uh, he truly uh, is a guy that has made a mark on my life that I hope I never get over. So... Um, I just, I'm so thankful he's here. I want you guys just to give him a huge destiny welcome today. Would you welcome Mark Demas? Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Good morning. It's wonderful to be with you on your 18th birthday. What a celebration. Uh, our church is just over 16 year olds, and I know the the ups and the downs, the heartache, the hell aches that it takes to stay in the game for that long. So way to go to all of you that are here. And it truly is an honor to be with you today. And uh, I know the service has gone a little long with the baptisms, I mean, over whatever. So drink like a drink out of a fire hose or that kind of thing. Hey, real quick, I don't know where Leesburg is. I, I mean, I came in the dark last night, but I do know where Lynchburg is because I am one of Jerry's kids back in the day at Liberty University. Uh, I actually grew up Jesuit Catholic. How many people went to Liberty here? Anybody? I know there's a few. Really? Oh, yeah. All right. You don't sound too excited about that. For you. Wow. No, I grew up uh, in uh, a single-parent home, uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, I was raised Jesuit Catholic. At 19, I was a uh, freshman uh, college baseball player in Mesa at Community College in Arizona. Uh, this would have been 1980. In my sophomore year, uh, I'd never heard of Jerry Falwell. I didn't know there was a Liberty. The school was only nine or ten years old at the time. Uh, but the third baseman flunked out, and uh, I was recruited long distance. And I said, if you'll come in January, I'll give you a full-ride scholarship. I was Coach Worthington. The stadium's named after him. I played with Sid Bream and Lee Guterman and those guys back in the early 80s. So I went from Jesuit Catholicism to Jerry Falwell, independent fundamentalist, whatever that was back then. Grew up with Jonathan uh, there and, and Jerry Jr., who's now, of course, the president of the school. And 
So anyway, I know my way around Lynchburg and played up and down the East Coast in different schools and uh, McLean and all, all these places here, George Washington, but it's not that that has brought me here today. It's the uh, heart of your pastor and uh, the vision that he has not only uh, to be a church, but to be a church of the 21st century, which is really a reflection of the first century church. And to not just reach people uh, in, in ways that, that look good on paper, as it were, measuring success, for instance, by numbers, dollars, and buildings, but by life change and uh, social justice and economic transformation of a community. By the way, if you don't hear anything else today, this is one thing you might consider. The apologetic of the 21st century is social justice and economic transformation. It is not bringing Billy Graham to your city, God bless him, and preaching with words the gospel. That doesn't cut it anymore. It's not what people are buying into. It's not what they're listening to, hence your 4%. And that's what I want to talk to you today. There's a lot of things I could share with you today, but I want to focus on one structural systemic macro change that the American church must make in the 21st century in order to advance a credible gospel of God's love for all people in an increasingly diverse and cynical society. You know, uh, a few years ago, my wife, uh, when I turned 40, she rented a sailboat. We're not sailors. There's a lake in Arkansas, but she got a few friends together and surprised me. She played Come Sail Away, that old stick song, blindfolded me, took me on a two-hour drive. We went down to a dock. I didn't know where we were, but I heard the music playing in the background. And we get on a sailboat, say, surprise, birthday party, about 10 of our friends on the sailboat. And so we pulled out a little thing. I'd never been on a sailboat before, and, and uh, it was super fun, the big masts, you know, and the sails and everything. Well, we got out uh, outside of the little harbor there, and we got out on the lake, and they unfurled the sails, and everything was awesome except there was no wind. And, and we were dead in the water. Now, I don't know, you know, maybe they're sailing up here, but uh, again, I'm not a sailor, but the, these sails were unfurled, but for, there was no wind. And uh, literally, we were dead in the water, had to use a little motor to get around and get back and all that kind of stuff. And I remember that when I was thinking about this concept of disruption, because that's exactly where the American church is today, dead in the water. Dead in the water. Our sails are unfurled for past winds. Does that make sense? It's like the gospel boat. Here's the gospel boat. We're trying to advance this gospel. And, here, and in the past, the sails were unfurled like this to catch these tailwinds. But in our lifetime, the winds have shifted, and we're heading into headwinds. How do you keep a boat going into headwinds? How do you make progress? How do you move at all? Well, the American church today has its, its sails unfurled for past winds, and we're dead in the water. We have to learn to tack. You have to learn to make quick cuts and zigzags. It's a maneuver in sailing. I looked up and tack. And another way to say this is we have to structurally change the, our approach to sailing. Uh, another way to say it is uh, maybe you've been to the beach before and you've been sitting at the ocean's edge in a nice little lounge chair and, and uh, you know, the sun, the surf, the sound of your kids playing, maybe reading a good book, just enjoying uh, the day at the beach, and all of a sudden out of nowhere comes a rogue wave. You ever experienced that before? It's like this big rush of water. You're like, whoa, you jump up because it's really cold and it's really big and it's really powerful and you grab your chair and you feel the rush and the power of the surge against your leg. How many know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, and then, of course, it goes back. You feel it against your legs, and the power of your toes sink down in the sand and against the back of your legs. You've had that experience, right? Well, you know, what most people do, what I've done in those times, is I kind of, when the water goes back and recedes, I kind of get my chair, and I kind of, like, readjust it, and I reposition and make a few little minor adjustments and to the sand. I get back to reading my book, enjoying the, the sun, the surf, the sand, right? Well, you know what happens. If you stay there long enough, it'll happen again, won't it? Here comes this rush, this wave, this water. You go through the whole process again. If you stay there long, and let's say it for a while, it's every 30 minutes, but then that wave starts coming every 20 minutes, right? And every 15 and every 10. And, and what you notice is that the intervals are shrinking. So it used to be 30 minutes. Now it's like 10, uh, 15 or 10 minutes. And, and the power, the, the, the increase of the power and the surge goes up. And at some point it dawns on you what? What? The tide's coming in, right? And once you realize the tide is coming in, you will recognize that token adjustments of your chair is no longer enough to cut it if you hope to remain at the ocean's edge, enjoying the sun, the surf, the sand, the sound of your kids playing. You'll have to physically pick up your chair and move it to an entirely different spot on the beach in order to remain right where you are, enjoying the beach on that day. And that's exactly where the American church finds itself today, dead in the water in need of structural adjustment. Sociopolitical issues in our lifetime are affecting us in, in every way, along the lines of race, class, culture, gender. 
I mean, this country is so painfully polarized, we don't even know to stand, sit, or kneel during the playing of a national anthem. And the American church has its sails pitched for past wins. On the single greatest issue of our time, which is all things racial, the American church seeks to be all things missional, and we have no voice at the table. On the single greatest, most polarizing, painful period in our history uh, here in the 21st century. All of this is to speak, then, of the church in need of learning to tact to the prevailing winds, making structural adjustments, moving our chair, doing business, so to speak, in an entirely different way. And in the business world, this is a concept known as disruption. Here's a slide. I was reading about two years ago. I was in a hotel room speaking to the Evangelical Covenant Church. I can put up the next slide if you would. Uh, and, and I was preparing to, to speak to their national meeting, and I came across an article in CNN written by a, a CNN contributor, Mel Robbins, in which she was talking about this concept known in the business world as disruption. And she said in this article, she talked about disruptors, that disruptors were those who create new ways of doing things that open new markets, doors, and possibilities. She said disruptors don't innovate from within systems, rather they get outside the system, turn it upside down to affect systemic change. They break current molds, they change our way of thinking about those molds, and then they hand us the new rules for how things work. And as Mel Robbins explained the concept of disruption by speaking of disruptors, next slide, she talked about how there were these uh, things in business known as disruptive companies. Right? So think about it. Uh, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, a disruptor. Prior to 2005, there was not anything called social media. I know some of you are too young to remember that, right? But uh, some of us remember that there was not even a thing. The internet back in the day, when I started my church, Greg, probably the same thing. I think AOL is right here, right? You have mail. It's right here in, in this area. That, that was it. And, and largely, everything was an exchange of information. Even news was a big deal coming through the internet. But Mark Zuckerberg, you know the story. He, he sat down and he, and he created what today is called Facebook. And that led to the innovation uh, of the internet as a move away from information as a way to connect with people and relationship. And now today we have social media, all because of this disruption in the internet that was created by Mark Zuckerberg and a company today called Facebook. Uber has completely upended the way we hail rides, right? I talked to my daughter, to my 25-year-old. Her, her, she had a flat tire. I said, how'd you get there? So I just Ubered. You know, I Uber around and we have it on our smartphones. It completely changed the game, Right? Uh, Amazon, it used to be that you go to stores to, to, to buy things, right? Today you go to stores to touch and feel things and then go buy them for a cheaper discount online, right? You just go to try it on, play with it a little bit, make sure you like it, and then you go order it online, right? Amazon completely changed the game of retail and online shopping. Disruptive companies led by, next slide please, disruptive leaders. And disruptive leaders are those who are able to see around the curve. Think about that. I've, been in New York City, maybe you have too, and there's all these buildings and you walk straight down an aisle, but it's not the ability to just see what's in front of you, it's, it's learning to see around the curve. That's a disruptor, right? Uh, disruptors create their own platforms, by the way. They don't co-opt the platforms of others, they create their own platforms. They simplify complexity, they articulate nuance, and disruptive leaders say what needs to be said and do what needs to be done before others even know what to say or that something needs to be done. And all of that got me thinking that we, in fact, next slide, have and serve a disruptive God. We have and serve a disruptive God. Think about it. Jesus disrupted darkness, and he gave us what? Light. Complete upending of the system. He disrupted the law and gave us faith. He disrupted sin and gave us salvation. Death and gave us life. Time and gave us eternity. Do you see the disruption? And in all of that, if in fact we serve and have a disruptive God, surely he expects the bride, the local church on earth, to be disruptive as well. And I get an amen. You know, my church might get a little help out you, you know. But if we have and serve a disruptive God, surely he expects his bride to be disruptive as well. And the concept of marriage is a thing called uh, that water rises to its own level. In other words, you don't pour water into a cup and one side's higher than the other. It rises to its own level. If God is a disruptor, he expects the church to be disruptive as well. Jesus taught us to pray, didn't he? Next slide. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth 
as it is in heaven. So let me ask you a question. Next slide. If the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, if the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, then why on earth is the local church? This morning I'm talking about one systemic change of moving our chair to another pitch, of pitching our sails differently. And I want to speak to this issue at a structural level and then ultimately at a personal level. I'm saying if Christ taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we know the kingdom of heaven is not segregated by race, class, gender, culture, politics. Revelation 7, 9, every nation, tribe, people, and tongue, walking, working, worshiping God together as one in one room, so to speak, as the one bride of Christ. If Christ taught us to pray what's going on up there ought to be going on down here, we know the kingdom of heaven is not segregated. For nearly 20 years then, I've been devoting my life to answering and, or to asking and addressing this question, if the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, then why on earth is the local church? Currently, next slide, 86.3% of churches in the United States today are segregated by race, uh, race and class, and little has changed in the more than 100 years since it was first observed that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. Churches across this country are 10 times more segregated than the neighborhoods they're in and 20 times more segregated than nearby public schools. Surely it breaks the heart of God that so many churches, the vast majority of these churches, are in fact segregated by race and class, and again, that little has changed in now the more than 100 years since it was first observed that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. Brothers and sisters, I contend it should not be so. Amen? It should not be so. But more than bemoaning this structural problem from an emotional level, the systemic segregation of the American church along the lines of race, class, and culture is inhibiting our ability to present a credible gospel in an increasingly diverse and cynical society. My good friend Dave Olson, next slide please, he, he researched uh, back in 2009, 2010, he researched 200,000 churches in this country in a project called the American Church Research Project. And he found that 19, uh, in 2009 that between 1990 and that year, 2009, in the 20-year period of American history when more than 56 million people became American citizens through birth or legal immigration. That's on top of the 300 million that were already here. And statistics like in this area where Greg talked about 4% uh, church attenders and, and, and people have given their life to Christ. In a 20-year period in American history when more than 56 million people were added to the roles of this country, again, through birth or legal immigration, do you know how many people became active members of a local church? 446,540 people, less than 1%. Y'all look at me. No one is listening. No one is listening. We're dead in the water. Sails unfurled for past winds. Sitting on the beach trying to make token adjustments to our chairs when there's a tsunami coming in about to hit this church. We have zero credibility in this increasingly diverse and cynical society. And I contend, next slide, that the single greatest reason that people are not buying into our message is because we preach a message of God's love for all people from otherwise segregated pulpits and pews. It's unbelievable. You understand what I'm saying? An increasingly diverse and cynical society is no longer finding credible our message of God's love for all people. Why? Because we proclaim it, we preach it from segregated pulpits, pews, and in fact, segregated lives and lifestyles. What does that look like in real time? Well, back when we started our church uh, in 2001, a couple years into it, we were able to rent an 80,000-square-foot abandoned Walmart for the amazing sum of just 10 cents a square foot. And that's something that's about $650, $700 for 80,000 square feet. It was so bad, the first thing we had to do was trap the animals, hire an animal trapper to trap all the animals living in this building that had been abandoned in the community for eight years. Of course, we're in the most violent community of the city, 29% uh, poverty, 66% of kids. Like I grew up at a time of 6% today in our community, 66% of kids without dads. Um, in the community where we are. But we took over this eight-year-old Walmart, and like a lot of Walmarts, they had a big glass front, and it was next to a Kroger grocery store. I don't know if you have those here, but like a Safeway or uh, a grocery store. And, and then there's a, a you know, check cashing place in the pawn shop and Norm's Bar and Nails and Gas. So that's why people like come to Mosaic. You can get it all done right there. Cash your check, go to the pawn shop, worship a little, get gas in your car, buy some groceries, right? 
And uh, one day, a couple of our ladies were next door uh, at Kroger getting some groceries before church, and they invited a woman, uh, happened to be an African-American woman, she came over to the church. And so right at the glass front, this big glass front of the, of the Walmart, that African-American woman came to our church, and this is what she did. She looked inside. So what do you think she was looking for? I guarantee every person of color in this room knows what she's looking for. Yeah. Is there anyone in that room that looks like me? So what if she looks and she sees the white pastor, by full disclosure, I'm white, Italian, Russian, Jew, and American mutt, right? Born out of wedlock, as I said, in 61. But she looks in and she sees the white pastor and she says, God loves everyone. God loves everyone, right? And then she sees the all-white man right back there. Some of you old enough to remember, AWB, the all-white man, right? And that God loves everyone. God loves everyone. And then she looks over on a map on the wall. There's a cork board and there's a map. And on this map are little stick pins and there's little flags and a little picture of these families. And they're all over the world. And she realizes that this church sends its people and its resources across oceans. But I've never seen them across the street. What could she conclude? Well, I guess the God and the gospel you're talking about is the God of the white people, the gospel for the white people, because I don't see any of my people in there. And what is any different about that today than two or even 3,000 years ago when the Hittites had their gods and the Egyptians had their gods and the Phoenicians had their gods and we Jews have our God? What is any different about that today? Now, you might say, well, come on, Mark. I mean, when, when God looks down on the city of Leesburg or the Washington, D.C. area, we know it's bigger than Destiny Church. I mean, we're just one local church, part of a whole church. Let's say the church of the city. Let's say the church of the area of the... Washington, D.C. area. And so, so what's the big deal? When God looks down on, on his church, he sees the beauty and the diversity of and there's African-American churches and Korean churches and Chinese and Mexican and white. And, and he sees the wonderful diversity of his kingdom. So what's the big deal? And I'm like, that's well and good. Status quo, sales unfurled, keep your chair right where it is if you're trying to evangelize Jesus. Is that what you all trying to do here at Destiny Church? Win Jesus to Jesus? You ever think about that? See, it's not God who needs to see it. Amen? Can I get an amen? It's this woman. It's this woman with her face against the glass. She is the target audience. She is the one who needs to see that the God we love and serve is a God for all people, not just my kind of people. Not just our kind, our type, but for all people on earth as it is in heaven. The fact is, next slide, the New Testament church was a multi-ethnic, economically diverse community of faith. Men and women, Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles, basically everybody else, rich and poor, they walked, worked, and worshipped God together as one. And this, beyond their words, is what catapulted the gospel three centuries later to the seat of the Roman Empire. It was the expression of good works, the greatest work of loving your neighbor. Someone very different than you, as Greg preached recently. Someone very different than you. This is the work of God and the Holy Spirit that we can't otherwise do. It's what Christ said in Matthew 5.16, let them see your good works. What is the greatest work? Love God and what? Love your neighbor. A biblical neighbor is someone very different than you. This world needs to see it. And Paul in, chapter, uh, in, in Ephesians chapter 3, at the end of verse, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what you could ever ask or think. Do you know that verse has nothing to do with raising money, buying land, and building buildings? Do you know how many pastors preach that verse for that reason? In a generosity series? If everybody gives, God's going to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we could ever ask or imagine or think. It has nothing to do with raising money buying land or building buildings. You know what it is? It's to make a black man and a white man two and a half miles from Little Rock Central High School walk, work, and worship God together as one for the sake of the gospel. That is something only God can do. And God can do it when we open ourselves up for disruption. The New Testament church was multi-ethnic. It was envisioned by Christ in the night before he died. I pray that they would be one so that the world would know God's love and believe. By the way, you know what the Greek word for world is? World. You know what the Greek word for all is? All. You know what the Greek word for everyone is? Everyone. This is who God intends for us to reach in and through the local church. It was described in action by Luke at a place called Antioch. It's not Jerusalem, but it's the church at Antioch that is the greatest church of the New Testament. It's everything a pastor wants to be. Mega, missional, multi-ethnic, and multi-site. It wasn't Jerusalem that first sent missionaries to the world. It was the church at Antioch. Why? The church at Jerusalem was made up largely of Jewish believers, a homogeneous church, the same kind of people 
going to church there. And when there was koinonia, you've heard about this great thing, koinonia. They were all selling their land and giving money and all. And, and, they were all, and it says in Luke, by the way, as a disciple of Paul. So when you're reading Luke, you're reading Paul. But, but he says, he makes a comment. He says, when they were putting their money in the pot, there was not a needy person among, do you remember what it says? Them. But there were a whole lot of needy people outside those doors. And it wasn't until you get to the church at Antioch that they recognized that. Why? Because the church at Antioch was a multi-ethnic community of faith. Jewish and Gentile believers walking, working, worshiping God together as one. This all happened in a place called Antioch, where diversity and unity first dwelt in the church. They sent missionaries to the world willing. Paul and Barnabas on the first, the second, later, the third missionary journeys. They didn't come from Jerusalem. They came from Antioch. God said, go, Peter, James, and John, but they stayed. Why? Because explosive growth, more often than not, leads to internal focus in a church. And that's what happened when 3,000 of the same kind of person got saved on one day. The American church measures the success, as Pastor Greg taught you two weeks ago, by numbers, dollars, and buildings. But that is not the measure of an effective church. It's all about influence. And the greater your diversity, the greater your influence. So when Antioch becomes a diverse church, guess what? They send missionaries to the world. Do you know why? When your church reflects the community, mission isn't a program. It is who you are. When Agabus comes to the city of Antioch and he says, everybody better prepare, there is a major famine coming to this region. You know what the very next verse says? So the people of Antioch took up a collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Why did the people of Antioch think about the other? Because they were the other. They weren't interested in building bridges to the community. You know why? They were the community. And it completely upends the game. It's Facebook to the internet. It's Uber to taxi rides. It's Amazon to retail. When your church reflects the community in ethnic, economic, cultural, racial, political diversity, mission isn't a program, it's who you are. It flows from you. And of course, Paul prescribed it in the book of Ephesians. All that's to say, next slide, that this should be the American church's finest hour. Into this painful polarization that we see at every turn, every day. Remember our, our analogy of the waves? I grew up, I was raised in 1961 or born in 61. It felt like, though this wasn't true, but it felt like for someone of my age of 56, that uh, it used to be that about every 10 years there was a major racial confrontation in this country. There was civil rights in 1968, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King, later on the L.A. riots in the 70s, fast forward to O.J. Simpson of the trial in the 90s. It felt like about every 10 years there was this major blow-up of race. Now it's like every 10 days, sometimes every 10 minutes. The intensity is increased, the frequency is increased, and the church must change, structurally adjust. Into this painful polarization, this should be the church's finest hour. This society, this world, this, in, in which everybody's in their camps, bowed up and playing to their effective base, they should see us, Christians, walking, working, worshiping God together as one, beyond the distinctions of this world, that so often and otherwise divide. They should see us living beyond tolerance and agape love for one another. You know what tolerance is? It's the best the world has to offer. You blacks stay here, you whites stay there, you poor stay here, you rich, and that's how we'll all get along. That's called tolerance. What do we have? Agape love. Unconditional love for the other. This world needs that. They need to see us walking and living in agape love, bringing peace to our communities, advancing measurable community transformation getting beyond rhetoric to results. How many of you ever heard a pastor or seen a pastor or, or have perceived a pastor at church say, we're going to take this city for Christ? I speak to pastors all over the country. I ask them the question. They all raise their hand. Then I, you know what I ask them? I say, how many of you ever seen it happen? And you know what the response is? For four years I've been asking this question to pastors all over this country. And you know what the response is? They laugh. They chuckle. They've never seen it happen. That's because you can't make token adjustments and expect it to change. You can't leave your sales in the same spot. You have to tack to prevailing winds. So this should be our finest hour, but rather than be disruptive, next slide, the church, the American church, has been disrupted. Rather than be disruptive, we've been disrupted. Due to our systemic segregation, we have virtually no credibility uh, when it comes to discussing matters of race, class, and culture in a divided community. Therefore, our words are often spoken too late. Only after problematic situations arise or perceived injustice arrives to receive widespread attention. And thus, our words are more often than not, they ring hollow, they're inauthentic, they're self-serving, whether we speak them from the pulpit, on social media, or in the streets. Next slide. And I ask you this, is this not what it means to have become a noisy gong 
and a clanging cymbal. A structural disruptive move of the American church is to get beyond 86.3% of systemic segregation and integrate the church for the sake of the gospel. This is not about political correctness. It's about biblical correctness. It is the hope of the gospel in the 21st century. And I believe it's the single greatest move of the Holy Spirit throughout the world in his local church in this century will be the move to integration, bringing us together, creating a bride of Christ on earth as it is in heaven. For the church to be disruptive in such a way, it requires that we individually are willing to be disrupted as well. And that's where the rubber hits the mode, right? As Pastor Greg preached a, a week or two ago, there's this comfort factor built into the American church. In fact, the way pastors, church planners are taught to, to plant churches and build churches is to appeal to effective base and create comfort for people who come. That is everything that is not in the New Testament. That is everything that is not in the New Testament. The entire church, your entire experience with Christ ought to be uncomfortable. It ought to be challenging. Everything is upside down. It has to be disrupted the way we think. You cannot create a disruptive church unless you are willing personally to be disrupted as well. And you know who leads the way in that? Not uh, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We already told you that he was a disruptive God, right? Well, think about this. And if you have a Bible, Philippians chapter 2, just a place you can turn, uh, just to be remembered of this. But uh, Christ is, was God, obviously. The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the unity of the Trinity, each with person and personality. So imagine here is God in time eternity, the Father speaking to the Son, and he says, go, I'm sending you to the earth, to humans. You're going to become a man. You're going to become a Jew. You're going to have to live in the dirt streets of, of this area, Jerusalem and Judea, and, and, and born in Bethlehem in a stable, and you're going to have to eat this, this cultural food, and you're going to have to speak a different language. I mean, picture that in time eternity. And this was the mission that Christ was asked to embrace, asked to accept, and of course we know that he did. Now, in Philippians chapter 2, when the Apostle Paul is speaking of this, there's a passage, it's, it comes from a Greek word, a, a word there, kenosis, it means the emptying of himself. Christ himself is the example of how we are to follow uh, and to allow the Lord to disrupt our lives for the greater good, for the sake of the gospel, in order to find fulfillment and blessing in our lives. Right? What does that look like? Remember in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, it says this, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but rather with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. And then it says in verse 4, uh, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. I guarantee you've heard that verse. If you're a Christian, you've heard that verse and, 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 and have heard that verse preached, everything... But, but see, usually, 86.3% of the time, current stats, that verse is preached in the context of an all-black, all-white, all-Korean, all-Mexican church. Paul is preaching this in, in a multi-ethnic church. Ethnic, economic diversity, gender, all that was there at, at the church at Philippi. So when he says, do not think of one another, do not regard one another as more important than yourself, he's talking about diverse people, right? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit but rather think of others as more important. Think of your neighbor, the one who is different than you, the one in which there exists historic animosity and hostility. Think of those and their needs above your own. And you know how you do it? Verse 5, he says, Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality something to hold on to. What is he talking about? What is Paul talking about? In, in time eternity, as we said, Christ is God. Uh, in, this, in this position, uh, he has, think about this, power, position, and privilege. Think about it. What does Jesus Christ have when he's God prior to the incarnation? He has all power, all position, and all privilege, right? And then it says he did not regard these, these things as something to be held on to, grasped, it said. It's like clutched and kept to himself. When I was a kid, we played a game called King of the Hill. Do you, anybody remember that game? It's like a little berm on the playground, and you get to the top, and it's like one person, and they try to push everybody else down. You try to pull somebody. Jesus didn't come to be king of the hill. He came to be king of the world. So what's it take to be king of the world? It's not you getting to the top. It's not you keeping power and position and privilege for yourself. Whatever measure you have, 
lot of conversation about white privilege today. White privilege is a structural systemic problem that goes back to the founding of this country. But there's all kinds of privilege, isn't there? There's educational privilege. There's the privilege of being born in a two-parent home. I was not. There's a privilege of being born into a family with some money in economics. I was not. Well, all that's to say is there's whatever measure of power, whatever measure of privilege, whatever measure of position that you have, you are to have this attitude in you that was also in your Savior Christ Jesus. Because he didn't regard power, position, and privilege as something to be held onto and grasped and kept to himself. Every demographic group in this country today is fighting to attain or to maintain power, position, and privilege. Did you catch that? Every demographic group in this country, Republicans and Democrats, blacks and whites, rich and poor, men and women, you name it, everyone is fighting to attain or to maintain power, position, and privilege. And you know how you get it? You let it go. That's why it says, he did not regard these things as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. See, this is taught for 2,000 years as this great mystery, the kenosis, how God becomes man, and how does 100% God become 100% man, the kenosis, this emptying, this mystery? Well, sure, that's a mystery, but he never stopped being God, did he? Right? You, if you're going to forgive sins, you've got to be God. You're going to raise someone from the dead. You've got to be God. So, yes, it's a mystery. How is he 100% God? 100%? I don't know. It's a mystery. There is this kenosis, this, this emptying. But that's not what Paul's speaking to. What Paul is speaking to is in this multi-ethnic environment, in this economically diverse church environment, with a goal of extending the gospel in a credible way to people outside those doors, everyone in this room has to empty themselves of whatever measure of power, position and privilege you have to leverage it, to let it go, and to help others have what you don't. Christ came to us, and he gave to us what? Power, position, and privilege, things we did not have in the heavenly places, right? Therefore, his name is highly exalted, as if it could be exalted even more than it already was, by giving away his power, by giving away his position, by giving away his privilege, giving it to others that didn't have it, and lifting them up. His name was highly exalted. And we are to have that attitude in us that was also in Christ Jesus. You know, I was teaching this principle to a group of bankers recently. Uh, by and large, large uh, uh, many of them, mostly white, mostly men, uh, very powerful family and banking family in the state of Arkansas. And to their credit, they brought me in and said, let us have it, right? Uh, challenges on this. And so I did. And... Uh, but I, I was teaching this principle, and a white banker came up to me afterwards, He's, and, and I taught him, I, I mentioned this concept that it's not enough to, uh, and, and the end goal is not simply to give a person a fish. I'll use it, like, give a man, you heard that phrase, give a man a fish, right? You teach him a fish, you teach him for, for a lifetime, right? feed him for a day, you know what I'm saying? It's not just, the goal is not to give people who don't have fish, fish, or not even to help them so much learn how to fish. I mean, that, that's all well and good, but there's something even greater, know what it is? Help others own the pond. It's not just about giving away fish and teaching people to fish. It's about helping others own the pond. That's what Christ did to us. And I shared that, and this white banker came up to me and says, man, that's tough to accept because if I help others own the pond, that means my pond will shrink. I said, well, it may in fact shrink, but think about it this way. You'll have two ponds to fish in from now on. I help 20 people own the pond. I leverage my power, position, whatever I have, whatever measure God has given it to me, if I leverage and I let it go, and I don't fight to maintain or attain it, right? I let it go and I help others. I have 20 ponds sufficient, 50 ponds sufficient. Have this attitude in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Churches that are systemically homogeneous, the, the man Donald McGavern said in 1966, he said this, that, that churches that are systemically segregated or that, that follow or misapply what's called the homogeneous unit principle, target a people group and plant a church and give them everything they want to grow your church, he said that those churches will become exclusive, arrogant, and racist. And that danger must be resolutely combated. We're to have an attitude in ourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, that it's not about you. It's not about what you like. Where in the Bible is it about what you like? But I like this kind of music. You see? I, I like this. Well, where in the Bible is it about what you like? I thought we were to align the church with the vision of Christ and Paul for the church, not get it to fit my vision, right? You say, well, it's natural to want to be with people like you. Sure, it's natural. But when we signed up for this Christian thing, 
It was about living in the supernatural. Didn't you sign up to live in the supernatural, not just the natural, right? And of course it's hard. But no pastor degree of difficulty in the Bible. We can't have disruptive churches that affect systemic change in the society and advance a credible gospel unless we're willing to have this attitude in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. Not to attain or maintain power, but to let it go and help others own the pond. It's, it's, it's endemic to a church that will win the world and its community to the gospel in the 21st century. I know this. You have to have a disruptive life. I didn't even understand this, what I was doing, but 20 years ago, or I'm sorry, uh, 2000, uh, so that'd be 17 years ago, in 2000, I was in a, a chair getting my hair cut, and the, the woman who cut my hair in those days, African-American, Precious Williams, and one day I was reflecting about the city of Little Rock and the systemic segregation of the churches, and, and I asked her, I said, Precious, do you, do you think there's a need in Little Rock for a church where black and white people can go to church together and worship God together? And she said, oh, yes, Mark. And then she began to tell me of her experience growing up African-American in a segregated South and as a woman and all that. And I sat back. You ever be in a, uh, like a barber chair getting your hair done and you kind of zone out? Maybe they're like, they're rubbing your hair and stroking it and you kind of just kind of zone. I, I kind of got like that when she was talking. And, and I kind of zoned out and I was thinking about these things. I really wasn't thinking about doing it myself. But I was thinking about these things. And all of a sudden she said, Mark, do you ever think it could happen here? And when she said that, I experienced two things. First, a physical rush of heat and fear go from the top of my head out my shoes to the bottom. That same kind of fear you get when someone scares you in the dark. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's this rush of fear and heat. And all she did was say, Mark, do you ever think it could happen here? But I felt this surge of heat and this fear that rushed through my body. And then when she said, Mark, do you ever think it could happen here? In my spirit, I heard her words as these, Mark, would you be willing to do it here? And I left an incredible job in a church of 5,000 people, 600 kids, nine people on my staff, $3.5 million student center. I left all that to go into the urban community. And I'm not saying I did on my hero or anything. I just heard the voice of God. And I recognized it was like my own Macedonian call. It was a moment to be disrupted, to leave power, position, and privilege, and to go to those who didn't have it, to leverage whatever I had to bring others up and help the community come to own its pawn. Economic transformation, social justice, compassionate ministry, and yes, to advance a credible gospel in this community. Now, I'm not a hero, because of, but I just heard it. But here's my question. When, God is always speaking, isn't he? We believe that. What is he saying to you? What measure of power, position, and privilege... What measure of understanding have you been afforded in this life? What do you have? When you look at structural adjustments in the American church, just a few things that I'm saying, we're only talking about one thing here. But you can't have a disruptive church unless you have Christians in that church who are willing to be disrupted themselves. And I was in that moment. And I left that church to start Mosaic. God spoke to me, I heard his voice, and I obeyed. And that's nothing new. And I'll finish with this. Remember in Genesis chapter 12, Abram... Uh, Remember God came to Abram, Genesis 12, and he said, go. Disruption, by the way, always starts with a go. Did you know that? God said to Jesus, go. Right? Jesus said to Mark, 2,000 years later, go. God said to Abram, Genesis chapter 12, he said, go. Leave your family. Leave your land. Leave your father and mother. Leave your economic way of life. Leave everything. Sounds like disruption, doesn't it? And go. What did, what, and you know what Abram said to God, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, he's like, where am I going? And God says, I'll show you when you get there. Right? He just said, go. God told Moses to go, but Moses threw a fit. Moses didn't want to go. He fought, he battled, he battled, he tried to talk God out of it, everything. When God said, go to Abram, he went. 12, uh, Genesis 12, verse 4. Immediate obedience. He heard the voice of God, and he acted on it. And he went. He said, go to a land I'll show you. I'm going to make your name big. You're going to give you a land that your descendants will be like the stars in the sky. Just go. Disrupt. Allow me to disrupt you from comfort, from family, from fatherland, from, from everything you've known. And follow me by faith and obedience. And Abram took him up on his word. So you think that'd be a great story, right? How awesome it is. How easy it is. How, how well things went. They actually went pretty bad for Abram. And if you know the story, he takes Lot and his nephew and the herds grow and the people grow and they, they kind of occupy the same space. And in the graciousness of Abram's heart, he says to his nephew Lot, he says, look, you, look, how, what do you want? You take your land, you go to the south, I'll go north. You go east, you know, we got to separate because there's just too many of us. So too much, too much hassle here. 
Well, Lot being younger, of course, what does he do? He thinks about himself. Remember, don't think about yourself, think about the other. But Lot thinks about himself and he chooses the fine part, the valleys and the water and the green grass for all his, and he takes it and Abram is left with nothing but a desert. There's no way to feed his herds. There's no water there. He's left with nothing. And he is, and, and think about it. God said, go, I'm going to give you all this stuff. And what did you go to? You went out there and it was a desert. You have nothing. I left my family for this. Are you kidding me? I left my land, my way of life. Are you kidding me, God? And this is it? This is what I got? Are you kidding me? God takes Abram on a little walk. Genesis chapter 13. And he takes him up on a hill. And they're walking together on this hill. And God says something remarkable to Abram. You know what he says? Lift up your eyes. Why do you have to ask someone to lift up their eyes? Because they're looking down. Why are you looking down? Because you're depressed. You're sad. You're dejected. You've lost hope. You don't know what is next. And God says to him, lift up your eyes. And he says, how far can you see? Look to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west. As far as you can see, I will give it to you. Boy, I'm glad Abram looked up that day because God's given him so much and we're, we are ones who benefited from that. And I think that message is still for us today, for us as individuals in allowing ourselves and our lives to be disrupted from our comforts, our creature comforts, our power, our position, our privilege that affects then and, and helps the church become disruptive in order to advance a credible gospel. We should ask ourselves as individuals and collectively as a church, lift up your eyes. How far can you see? Because God wants to do in you and through you and collectively in a church, amazing work. This isn't about being a comfortable church. It's about being a credible church. And not just seeing large numbers of people in this room coming, but it's large numbers of people out there being affected through social justice, economic transformation, so that they see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Disruptive churches stand on the backs of individual Christians who allowed their own lives to be disrupted as well, like Christ's was, like Paul's was, like Abram's was, like I've learned that mine was, and that others in this room have. What is God saying to you? Lift up your eyes. How far can you see? He wants to do it for you. So as my good friend Chris Rice said back in a book in 1999, I've become convinced that God is not very interested in using the race, uh, in, in using the church to heal the race problems of this country. But in the 21st century, in our lifetime, to the degree that we're willing to surrender to his will, God is going to use race to heal the church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of being with the folks at Destiny today and his 18th birthday. Thank you for the 18 years and uh, for Greg and his wife and those in the beginning that had a vision to be uh, a church and not just a, a church status quo, 86.3% reaching 4% of the people, but, but being disrupted hearing your voice, responding to your call, obeying by faith, weathering the storms, going through the deserts, all to reach those who don't know you. Lord, I pray that as individuals, we've heard your word as a collective church, and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would show us the way in which we should go. Let us lift up our eyes to the north, the south, the east, and the west, and see all that you desire to do in and through us as individuals in the church, and may it come to pass for your glory in Jesus' name. Thank you, Mark. Wow, we have our work cut out for us. Uh, I am so excited. I, you know, I was thinking as Mark was talking, 18 years ago, what we did was was actually move the chair. But uh, I think we're at a place where we've been adjusting it. And if you've been around the last few weeks and then today, you're seeing God speaking to us as a church. I'm so excited about where we're going. Uh, over the next few months, um, you're going to hear a lot more about this. In January, I'm going to share some vision with you that uh, I believe is going to shape us for the next 20 years. And uh, it's also uh, 21 days of prayer and fasting. We're going to, it's going to be incredible. But I will tell you this, we can't do it without you, without God working in your heart and changing you. Uh, we all have to change. 
And I am so excited about what God will do in and through us as we give Him our heart, our devotion, as we love one another. Uh, I want all kinds of people looking through the glass and saying, oh, wow, there I am. And uh, that's, that's our vision and dream. Hey, um, today, uh, this, is, this is for our church family. Uh, every Thanksgiving, we bring a Thanksgiving offering and, and give sacrificially to the kingdom. Uh, this is an amazing year for us. We, we're at a place where we have no debt. We're not building buildings or buying property or anything like this. We are giving to the kingdom. And uh, I am, I'm excited to be able to receive this offering today uh, because it is, it is kingdom focused. And so our ushers are gonna come and uh, we're gonna worship in, in giving. Uh, before we do that though, let me just say this. If you walked in here today and you've heard about having this relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, about taking this step, um, here's what I want you to do. If you're making the decision today, hey, I want what these guys are talking about. I want this, uh, this, this relationship with God, with Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm going to ask you to do one really simple thing. On your DC Connect card, there's a little box at the bottom on the front it just says, I'm committing my life to Christ for the very first time. Or maybe you're de-churched or, you know, you, you just, you're here and, and it's been a long time. And you may want to say, I'm recommitting my life to Christ. I'd just like you to check that box. That's your, that's your step today. And we'll contact you and help you take the next steps. But um, we, we want you to know Jesus and uh, uh, the life change that that brings. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for bringing Mark to us and, and this message to us, O oh Lord. I pray that um, we would respond with our lives. And uh, Father, I just give you all the praise and glory. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to give today. Um, Lord, for the person who has come in here and are hurting, who need a relationship with you, Lord, we just pray together uh, that you would come into their heart, that you would forgive them of their sin, and that you would receive them into your kingdom today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.